Our scripture reading this morning is found in Luke 4, 31 through 44. Again, Luke 4, 31 through 44. Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city in Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. They were astounded at his teachings because he spoke with authority. In the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. When the demon had thrown him down before them, he came out of him without having done him any harm. They were all amazed and kept saying to another, What kind of utterance is this? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and out they come. And a report about him began to reach every place in the region. After leaving the synagogue, he entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him about her. Then he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she, w she got up and began to serve them. As the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various kinds of diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on each of them and cured them. Demons also come out of many, shouting, You, you are, are the, the Son, son of, of God. God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Messiah. At daybreak, he departed and went into a deserted place, and the crowds were looking for him, and when they reached him, they wanted to prevent him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other cities also, for this is the purpose I am sent. So he continued proclaiming the message in the synagogues of Judea. This, this is, is the, the word, word of, of the Lord. Isn't that great? I love it. Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Luke 4, the text they've just read. If you're not there, as we are moving through, if you're new this Sunday, we are studying the Gospel of Luke and uh, enjoying our dive into the text. We're at 431, if you're turning to that passage. One of life's greatest blessings was to have been mentored by the late theologian and Bible scholar Charles Ryrie. He was a dear friend, and I don't say that to, to name drop, but to give you this great illustration, we had uh, gone out to eat, and the, the waiter had seen us pray, and he said, oh, you must be Christians. He said, you know, I'm going to share a Bible verse with you. You may not know the Bible very well, but I, I just have to share this with you, and, and I had to, I, I, I about laughed out loud, and I, I looked at Charles, and he was so gracious, and I, I, I smiled, and he, he winked back, and I thought, you know, here is considered one of the greatest evangelical scholars in the last 100 years. He's known for the study Bible, and this waiter is asking, now, you may not know the Bible, but I wanted to share this verse. <laughs> if he had only known who was sitting there at that table, if the people at Capernaum had only known who was in their midst, 
is, is the line that's going to be seen as we go through Luke chapter 4, 31 and following. It's a contrast with what we saw at Nazareth last week. If you remember the synagogue at Nazareth, uh, that glowing endorsements quickly changed to wanting to have a lynch mob to, to execute Jesus. In Capernaum, quite the, the contrary. He's, he's well received. And we're going to see that here in Luke's gospel, at least, at least at this point in the narrative. So let's go to Lord in prayer and we'll dive into the text. Father, we come to you and we thank you for your word. Thank you for how we can come and, and worship you and we come with heavy hearts this, from this week. We, we see a political climate that's becoming more and more hostile to the things of you. We saw even this week the turning over of a decision that had been instated not to support abortion and now we are funding it internationally. Nothing's new under the sun. The convenience or the blessing that came from offering up children to Molech are now offered on the altar of convenience in an abortion clinic. Lord, we've overturned sexuality and gender identity, and, and, and we see all these things just coming crashing in. And as we've been reminding ourselves these last several weeks, you, O oh Lord, are the sovereign one. And we're going to see that in the text today. It's, it's you who are, is in charge. Nothing takes you by surprise. And so this morning, help us to kind of block the things of this past week and the things of, that's looming in the next week and help us to focus on the text this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in verse 31, we see Jesus has come to another synagogue, as was his custom. And this time we're at Capernaum. Capernaum served as a strategic location for Jesus' ministry. It will be considered the hometown of Jesus. In fact, let me show you a map so you can see if you're not familiar with the geography of the land. <clears throat> you see the Sea of Galilee over there to the right. Capernaum is on the north quadrant of the Sea of Galilee. Even today, if I were to take you and... <clears throat> The country's closed to tourists, but if, if we could go, uh, we would see these ruins. This is an aerial shot <coughs> of the site. Uh, you can see uh, it's fairly large there on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And if you'll see the next slide, we'll, we'll look at the synagogue. Now, this is third, fourth century synagogue, but it is on the first century synagogue, which is fun, because that's where the scene occurs at the beginning of our reading. And then the text says we go to Peter's mother-in-law's house. In the next slide, that UFO-looking type building was built over the spot, most likely, and, I, and I'd say it's a five out of five. Yes, this is the location of uh, Peter's mother-in-law's house, and there's much archaeological evidence to support that. Uh, uh, so our text then, again, is to Capernaum. Why is it strategic? Not only is it a major port on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, but it also was nestled, straddled the international highway that went through. This is a busy thoroughfare. It also borders two major political territories, uh, boundaries, 
And so it shouldn't surprise us it's that we meet a tax collector here. Why? Because it's, it's a tariff on goods going back and forth. Or a Roman centurion. Why? Because this is an outpost. It, it's a strategic town for Jesus to be ministering. And as he comes here on the, this town in Galilee on the Sabbath, the text tells us he began to teach the people. It's the same line used in verse 15. And the next line is also the same. They were amazed. They were amazed back at Nazareth at the beginning. You kind of wonder, okay, what's going to happen next? Because we know what happened at Nazareth. Will that same scene unfold here? But there is one unique difference here in the text. It says they were amazed at his teaching because he spoke with authority. You don't see that mentioned in the scene in Nazareth. This idea of his authority. Literally, it's rendered his word was with authority, drawing to attention to Jesus as the great teacher. As we move through the gospel, we're going to see Jesus fulfilling two major roles. One is that of a teacher. The other is a miracle worker. And I don't want you to miss this as we look at these two scenes and then kind of a general overview at the end of this chapter four, is that Jesus is... is uh, demonstrating who he is. Luke's highlighting, this is the Son of God. Right? And, and that's going to be highlighted here. And ironically, it's not by the people. It's not by the, the, the chief rabbi of the synagogue. It, it, it's not by the doctors in the town. Notice what the text says. Now, in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean. Luke loves that line, uses it over 23 times or about 23 times in the text, an unclean demon means unrighteous, ungodly. <clears throat> and, you know, the immediate question you should ask is, notice where he is? He's not outside the synagogue, he's in the synagogue. And you wonder, did they know he was demon-possessed? Or did he just blend right in? <laughs> and most likely he's the youth pastor. No, I, I'm just joking, <laughs> all right? We don't have one yet, so we can say that. <laughs> and it says, he cried out with a loud voice. And there, there, there's no missing this, right? Jesus walks in, you got this demoniac that, 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 that bellows out and says with a loud voice, ha, this is the net Bible I'm rendering, reading out of, leave us alone. Literally, why are you meddling with me, Jesus? Whew, right? Remember, this is a demon. Here's the son of God, and this demon goes, why are you messing with me? <laughs> I love it. All right, you got Jesus, the Nazarene, have you come to destroy, watch the pronoun, us. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. How interesting, the people at Nazareth knew Jesus was from Nazareth, but they missed the latter part. You're the son of God. But this demon knows it. He knows it full well. Twice the demon will state, you, you've not come to destroy us. This idea here is, who's he talking about? The, is this the, the worship pastor in the, the choir? I mean, who, who's he talking about here? I think most likely he's talking about the, him, himself, the demon, and the one he possesses, the, 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 the one that's, that has the demon, right? Because later we're told in verse 35, he, the demon threw the man down in the midst, but he came out of him without hurting him. In other words, Jesus intervenes. So this idea is, the demon's stating it, if you do anything to me, I'm going to destroy the one I'm possessing. Just like Satan, isn't it? He's not concerned 
about the unsaved. He's only concerned about his name and how he might destroy. The demon's defiance of Jesus and his willingness to use a name to declare you're the Holy One of God has led one Lucan scholar to state the demon's claim to know who Jesus is may represent an attempt to gain power over him through knowledge of his name. You've got a spiritual battle taking place in the synagogue, in the church at Nazareth, or at Capernaum. Note the demon's statements. The demon knew he was Jesus. And again, he recognizes far more than what the Nazarenes recognized. Those at Nazareth said, oh, this is, isn't this Joseph's son? <laughs> no, this is the son of God. Secondly, the demon wanted nothing to do with holiness. Did you see that? You holy one of God, I have nothing to do with this. And third, note the demon also observes his impending judgment. He's fully aware of what is about to transpire. What a contrast with our present world. <laughs> We've got scholars and educators that can debate the historical Jesus but the demons know who he is. I mean, my advisor back in Aberdeen was agnostic at best. She loved the history and the Greek, but she did not believe Jesus was the Son of God. Politicians and scientists can minimize Jesus' role, but the demons know. Philosophers and activists can demote Jesus to coexist with other religious systems, but the demons know. Movie stars and athletes can evoke the name of Jesus as a cuss word, but the demons know. Our world desperately needs to know the name of Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is more than a nice prophet that lived 2,000 years ago. He is the King of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. Our world also needs to understand that judgment is looming. It, all, it awaits all those who embrace unrighteousness and fail to bend their knee before a holy God. The Lord is not playing games. A.W. <laughs> Tozer, minister from yesteryear, says it is either all of Christ or none of Christ. I believe we need to preach again a whole Christ to the world, a Christ who does not need our apologies, a Christ who will not be divided, a Christ who will either be Lord of all or will not be Lord at all. Did you catch that? Here is this demon. He fully understands who Jesus is. In fact, notice the text as we move on in verse 41. The demons declare, it's plural now, you are the son of God. They identify him as Jesus. They identify him as the, the holy one of God. They identify him as the son of God. And they identify him as Christ in this brief passage. And yet our world plays games. And they're quick to use the name as a cuss word, but fail to understand who it is that is before them. The demons know. Look at Jesus' response. But Jesus rebuked him and said, silence, come out of him. And then we read the latter part here. First, note what Jesus did not do. He never refutes the claims of the demon. Right? Oh, shh, you know, I'm really not that kind of a guy. I'm, I'm, I want to be like that. I'm not. No, there's none of that. Jesus knows full well who he is. 
Secondly, Jesus did not ask, and I love this, the demon-possessed man to be removed from the church so that he could carry forth with his ministry. <laughs> oh, this is a disturbance. Get that guy out of here. We got, uh, I, I'm pontificating here. He doesn't do that either, does he? Instead, notice what Jesus does do. I love it. He protects the possessed man. He, he watches over him. And secondly, he admonishes the demon. The instruction to be silent reminds me of 1 Peter 2, where Peter mentions, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people or foolish demons. But why? Why would Jesus rebuke a demon who is speaking what is true to an audience that may not fully understand who he is? I mean, wouldn't you want to proclaim Jesus that you're the Holy One of God? There are several reasons. If you're taking notes, let me give you five of these. First of all, Jewish thought was that God would declare his Messiah, no one else. This is taught, seen in, in, in other rabbinic literature. So there is an element of where God will declare his own. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. We heard that at the, the baptism. We'll see it at the transfiguration. A declaration. This is the one. Secondly, this so-called secrecy is not because Jesus didn't know who he was. No, no, no. It provides an opportunity for people to make their own opinion. It fulfills God's teaching that eyes will be blinded so that others can be brought into this equation. Jesus certainly did not need an endorsement from a demon. <laughs> you right? uh, You see this with politicians all the time that say, no, no, no I don't need your contribution. Uh, that would be the worst thing I could do is to take that. And then finally, the secrecy avoids the political expectations that are associated with the Messiah. Because in the people's minds, they're looking for one who's going to overthrow Rome. And, and Jesus doesn't want them to get confused with all of that. So I think there's a, a potpourri of reasons why Jesus would say to this demon, be quiet. You're not the one that's going to instruct the people. It'll be the movement of the Holy Spirit as I teach, as I heal. But you are not to be doing this. And obviously there's one of control. And the demon acquiesces and he throws the man down and, and leaves. And the text says in verse 36, it repeats this, they were all amazed. We saw this earlier uh, in verse 32. We see it here again. And notice it says, by what authority? His teaching, they see authority. Why? Because he's not like the rest of the rabbis who say, well, Rabbi Kalel says, no, Jesus speaks with authority in the text. He just says, this is what the word of God says. So he has that kind of authority, but it's seen here, he has authority in his actions and what he does. Again, what is Luke doing? He's trying to, he's writing to Theophilus. He's writing to those who are trying to seek, is this truly Jesus, this one is the Christ? And, and, and he's setting this up as he's highlighting these scenes from the life of Jesus to say, look, this is the one. This is the one that we should be uh, adhering to this one called Jesus. And so the text tells us that the news about him spread into all areas of the region. News travels fast. 
Well, you have a demoniac, and now you have a mother-in-law. <laughs> in verse 38, now I have a great relationship with my mother-in-law, and I know there's a ton of jokes, and we could have run with this, we won't. But after Jesus left the synagogue, he entered Simon's house, and Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. She is very ill. And how do we know this? She can't even come to Jesus. She cannot sit up. And they go to her, or go to Jesus to help her. So we know there's grave concern about this mother. And he stood over her, Jesus did, commanded the fever, and it left her. And immediately she got up. And we see the full restoration because she begins to serve them. The parallels between the demoniac and the mother-in-law are huge. There are several things that we should see as we, we look at these two events. Neither individual sought Jesus' healing. The demoniac didn't. The mother-in-law didn't. In other words, faith was not a prerequisite to be healed or to have the demon cast out. Did you catch that? Neither one, neither individual is named. We don't know Peter's mother-in-law's name. Was it Dorcas? Dorothy? I don't know. We just, the text doesn't tell us. Neither individuals speak. The man never speaks. The mother-in-law never speaks. Neither individual, as I stated, were required to exhibit faith. Both individuals are suffering. Both are healed immediately. And both are healed by the word of God. Right? To the demon, come out. Silent get out. To the fever, he commands it to, to subside. It is God's word that goes forth which brings the healing. These parallels you don't want to miss. As you study God's word, as you look at, as you read through a passage, look at these, the, the contrast and the, the comparisons. What, what is Luke doing? I think by setting these two scenes side by side is to show that from the supernatural to the natural, that is physical healing, we are witnessing the truth that Jesus is Lord. Interestingly, we're a lot like the demoniac and the mother-in-law. I can do a little bit of an allegory. I want to be careful here. But we too were dead in sin. We didn't respond. Ephesians 2, but God who is rich in mercy met us, didn't he? <laughs> and by the word, the living word, we have salvation. And that's the idea here with this demoniac and with this mother-in-law. It is God who has to intervene time and, time and space in the person of Jesus. Otherwise, they were hopeless, helpless. <laughs> and we see that here in this text. The extent of it is seen then in 40 through 41 as the sun was setting all those who had relatives sick. Uh, and, and Luke separates the, the physical ailments from the supernatural. They're all healed. There's none. Oops, I didn't get that quite right. No, no, they're all healed. And again, I think 41 is key to the whole passage. The demons also came out crying, you are the son of God. There it is. There's no question here. I mean, think about this. Why was Jesus crucified? Because he was a good guy? Because he maybe taught some things that were different than the, the religious hoi polloi? No. He claimed to be God. And the religious rulers understood this. And so did the demons. And the, elsewhere in the New Testament we're told, demons know who Jesus is and they tremble. 
The departure for Capernaum then is concluded in 42 through 43 here as we see. Interesting, Luke, who loves to stress, uh, emphasize prayer throughout his gospel narrative, does not mention prayer here. In the parallel text in the gospels, it is mentioned prayer. And you go, why, Luke, why didn't you mention it here? Because this is not one of those strategic points for Luke's narrative. There'll be nine other times that Luke will mention Jesus praying, but clearly Jesus departs to spend time with the Father, and he knows his mission. Verse 43, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom to other towns as well. And so he continued to preach in the synagogues of Judea, which is really another reference for just the land of the Jews as he moves forward. So while I look at this scene, I, I, what are some things that we, we can walk away with we weren't there at Capernaum. I can take you to the ancient ruins. It's fascinating. I love reading the text on the spot. It makes my socks roll up and down. That, that's, that's good stuff. But what do you do with this? Well, there's three points I want to highlight. First of all, it is diabolical to presume upon God. Last week we, we touched on this. Don't presume upon God. Don't instruct him. But we see how diabolic it is based on this passage, isn't it? The Lord alone is the Almighty One. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary, which is then repeated earlier by Tozer, Christ is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. Satan has not changed his tactics. All the way back to Genesis chapter 3, he had Adam and Eve questioning the commands of the Lord. Did he really say that? Are you sure about that? You know, in essence, what God is doing, or Satan is doing, is questioning God's character. Gary Burge, a New Testament scholar, states the exclusive claim of Christianity about Christ is not centered on our belief that Jesus was right about God. It is centered on our claim that God was fully present in Christ to reconcile the world to himself. It is the theological claim about Jesus that makes the spiritual claims of Jesus potent. Jesus' words are right because those words are God's words. Jesus' way is not superior because it promotes some higher ethics or because it champions values that resonates with our spiritual sensitivities. He writes, Jesus' way is true because in him we find God drawing us to himself. No wonder the demon was freaking out in the synagogue. Not only does he understand judgment looms for me, but secondly, this Savior is here to rescue the world that I so desperately want to destroy under the command of Satan. We don't wrestle against politicians. <laughs> we, we wrestle against not flesh and blood, but against what? Principalities in the darkness. There is a spiritual battle going on. And in Luke chapter four, we see, listen, God is in charge. We are not here to instruct. We bend our knee to him. There's another great promise in this text. No earthly foe can withstand. No human deficiency can cripple, nor can any satanic force overtake the hand of God. Isn't that a comfort? I don't know what you have felt this week as you've watched some policies that are so antithetical to Scripture and this ongoing battle with the pandemic and a few of you have written of other burdens that you're bearing. 
Don't forget the Lord is in charge. Nothing is going to thwart him. No matter the issue, he is the all-powerful one. Our son played baseball for a season, and I remember the coach constantly reminding Josiah and his teammates, remember what you've practiced. Remember what I've told you, and do not go into this game thinking you're going to lose. Don't forget what God has told us in his word. Our Redeemer lives. He is victorious. We, we don't go around sucking on prune juice thinking we've lost this battle. God is in charge. He is the one who reigns. And I do wonder if the recent election and the ongoing pandemic aren't reminders that we, the church, are powerless apart from Christ. We need him. One minister states, the chief danger of the church today is it is trying to get on the same side of the world instead of turning the world upside down. Our master expects us to accomplish results, even if they bring opposition and conflict. Lauren going to a remote part of the world, that's not an easy decision. She can stand up here and say, this is what I'm doing. Did you hear it? This is a tough decision for her family. Yeah, she says, I'm going because this is what God has called me to do. We launched this church now six months ago. It was, that was a daunting task in the midst of a pandemic, but we do what God has called us to do. Our mission expects us to accomplish results even if they bring opposition and conflict. Anything is better than compromise, apathy, and paralysis. God give uh, to us an intense cry for the old-time power of the gospel and the Holy Ghost. That's what we need, right? Ooh, the, the chief danger, I love what he writes again. I'm going to repeat it. The church today is that it's trying to get on the same side of the world. Why? The world, it has nothing to offer. And Luke chapter 4 shows what happens. It seeks to destroy. It seeks to shackle. And Christ has come to set prisoners free. Second Chronicles 32, be strong and courageous. Be not afraid or dismayed, for there will be more with us than with the king of Assyria, nor all the multitude that is with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us, Lord our God is with us, and he will help us. Isn't that great? <laughs> Second Chronicles 32. And so, no earthly foe can withstand, no human deficiency can cripple, or can any satanic force overtake the hand of God. And there's a third point. This world cannot offer hope, healing, or peace. I would have loved to have been there after the demon was removed from the demoniac and just to hear his testimony. Share with us what it was like and, and, and now that you've been set free. I love uh, Peter's mother-in-law. I mean, she's, she's hurrying, scurrying into the kitchen to bring out the baklava. I mean, this is great, right? And the bagels. The headlines this past week, I think, shows us the plight we're in. It was on NPR's website. World leaders express hope as Biden and Harris are sworn in. There's this a euphoria around our change in leadership. And I... Whatever political position you hold, true hope, true healing and peace are found in only one person, 
That's Jesus Christ, right? <laughs> Just as we need to be reminded that Jesus is the all-powerful one, we need to rehearse the truths surrounding Jesus as the one and only Savior of the world. I love the Puritan writings. Thomas Brooks, one of those Puritans, writes, Oh, sirs, or we could put ladies, men and women, there is, a, there is in a crucified Jesus something proportionate to all the straits, needs, necessities, and desires of his poor people. He is bread to nourish them, a garment to cover and adorn them, a physician to heal them, a counselor to advise them, a captain to defend them, a prince to rule them, a prophet to teach them, a priest to make atonement for them, a husband to protect them, a father to provide for them, a brother to relieve them, a foundation to support them, a head to guide them, a treasure to enrich them, a son to enlighten them, a fountain to cleanse them. What more can any Christian desire to satisfy him and save him than to make him holy and happy apart from Christ this day and for all eternity? We need a church, don't we, to bask in the beauty of our Savior? It's a reminder that we are insignificant and he is all and in all. To those of you this morning who know a lot about Jesus, but you really don't know him, you're like the waiter who say, well, I don't know if you know about the Bible, but let me share something with you. You, you need to know this one. If nothing else, COVID has reminded us life is brief. You don't know what tomorrow holds. Bend your knee before this one before it is too late. Unlike the demon, come to Jesus for healing and salvation for your soul. You cannot afford to be flippant with Jesus. For you young people, tomorrow may not come. And what better opportunity to serve Christ as a young person and to be used by him to those who know this Jesus, and again, we're similar to the demon-possessed man and Peter's mother-in-law, how we have been saved and rescued. Spend some time this week reflecting on who he is. Spend some time basking in the presence of our Savior. Don't lose sight. This is the Holy One of God. We should not have to be instructed by the world. <laughs> we know this one. And perhaps you need to resemble that congregation at Capernaum and you need to rekindle the wonder. Are you amazed at this one? Or perhaps you need to be like Simon's mother-in-law and you need to be busy serving and you've been wallowing in guilt, self-pity, etc. We serve a glorious Lord, don't we? the Holy One of God, the Son of God, Jesus, our Messiah. Bask in his presence to this day. Father, thank you for your word. How we would have loved to have been there at that synagogue when you cast out, your son cast out that demon. When he restored Peter's mother-in-law. But Lord, 
we only need to look at our own lives to see what you have done for us. You've rescued us. You have restored us. And Father, we are thankful. May we not lose sight of that this morning. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.